Welcome to the fifth episode of the ongoing series, The Ten Lost Tribes in Jewish Consciousness, here on Sfarim Cheddar. And I'm Nachi Weinstein. In this episode, we discuss the history of the Red Jews, or the Reute Juden, in German and Yiddish literature, as the Ten Lost Tribes came to be referred to, as well as the famous Masa Akdamas, which is a legend centered around the Akdamas Piet that we say on Shavuos, where Rav Meir Shatz of Worms allegedly travels to the land of the Ten Tribes across the Sambation to get a magician to co- from the Lost Tribes to come and fight uh, for the Jews, protect the Jews of Worms, and Rav Meir cannot come back because he can only cross the Sambation for, on Shabbos because of Pekoch Nefesh, but he can't return, and vice versa with the Lost Tribes magician, and that's the legend, and we discuss that as well here um, besides the Red Jews. The corporate sponsor of this series is, as always, Gluck Plumbing. For all your service needs, big or small in New Jersey, with a full-service division from boiler replacements, main sewer line snakeouts, camera ink main lines, to a simple faucet leak, Gluck Plumbing Service Division has you covered. Covered. Give them a call, 732-523-1836, extension 1, and tell them you heard about them on the Sfarm Chatter podcast, and thank you to them again for their continued support of the podcast. This individual episode of this series is sponsored by Mosaica Press. Mosaica Press, which is renowned for its expert editors and designers, brings together top Jewish minds. Their influential books captivate a worldwide audience, sparking meaningful conversations across our community. Check out their many titles at mosaicapress.com or your local Judaica store, including the new book, From Creation to Redemption, uh, which in this insightful and original work of Chaim Willis illustrates how the weekly Haftarah imparts fundamental ideas that are relevant to our own lives and the times we are living in today through exploring the connection between the poetic, beautiful, and complicated Haftarahs and the standard Torah portion we read every week in shul. Get your copy now at mosaicapress.com and use the code CHATTER, C-H-A-T-T-E-R, for an exclusive 15% off. And you can find links in the show's notes below. To sponsor an individual episode on Sfarm Chatter or in this series, please email me sfarmchatter at gmail.com as well as check out the links in the show's notes below. There will be... Um, essays and articles and book reviews and things like that on the Sfarm Chatter Substack. If you haven't subscribed, p- please do so. Um, it's free. Substack, for those that aren't familiar, is a kind of blog where you get an email to your inbox or you can go on Substack. There's also a paid option, monthly or yearly, which really is to support the podcast. Um, and I appreciate anyone that does so. And if you do, there will be some bonus content from time to time for paying subscribers. And there's a link to subscribe to the Substack in the show's notes. Additionally, there's also a Svarim Chatter WhatsApp community. There's a link in the show's notes. There's an admin-only chat if you just want to see new books, new Svarim links, and things like that. And then there's two associated chats, which sometimes can get busy, which talk about one is for the podcast-related stuff, one is for Svarim and that kind of thing. And finally, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform, whether it's 24-6 or Apple or Spotify. And if you listen on Apple, if you can rate, and write a review. Very much appreciate it. It helps the podcast search and those kind of things. So I do um, appreciate it. Uh, finally, if you have any feedback on anything in the series, like, don't like, and just what you think in general, you can reach out to me. If you're on the WhatsApp chat, you'll see my number. You can comment on WhatsApp. You can send an email, farmchattergmail.com. And I hope you enjoy this fifth episode of the series. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Swarm Chatter podcast and another episode in the ongoing series here on Swarm Chatter, 10 Lost Tribes in Jewish Consciousness. On this episode of the podcast, in this episode of the series, I'm going to be joined by Professor Rebecca Voss, who is the 
Associate Professor of Jewish History at the Goethe University Frankfurt, and we'll be discussing the Red Jews, the Reute Juden, uh, which we discussed on our other episode, which may or may not come out before this one, but uh, about her book, previous book, Disputed Messiahs. And this book, this is a recent book that she printed also, so it fits into the series, and it's a brand new book titled Sons of, Survi- Sons of Saviors, The Red Jews in Yiddish Culture, published by Penn University Press. So thank you, Professor Voss, for joining me once again. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to speak about the Red Jews. Always a fun topic. Yeah, I, I usually start off, how do you become interested in something? And then, but I think here, just as a, I can add, I'll wait on that for a minute. What are the Red Jews or the Reute Juden? I think listeners listening are probably going, what, Red Jews? What is that? Red Jews, of course, everybody knows who speaks Yiddish, <laughs> are the 10 lost tribes of Israel in Yiddish, which uh, who in, in modern Yiddish are until this day are called the Reute Yiddelich, the Reute Yiddelich, the little Red Jews. So yeah, they are the 10 lost tribes. So you're right, it fits perfectly into your series. And we'll obviously we'll dive into how they became known as Red Jews, how the SRS Shatim went to that. Okay, but let's, how did you become interested in that? Um, when I was working on my dissertation on Jewish and Christian messianism in during the Reformation era, I was trying to read everything I could find on Jewish messianism in the 16th century in Germany. And then I also came across the Yiddish legend about the Red Jews. And I read it. And I was like, wait a minute. I read something similar in a wonderful book by Andrew Gao, which is also called the Red Jews, um, it's about the Christian legend of the Red Jews. And then I um, saw that there's something to say about them, about the Red Jews in Jewish culture and Yiddish literature. So um, there's also, as you, as you mentioned, there's a chapter in my, in my first book, um, Disputed Messiahs. And in this book, I'm taking the Red Jews um, up to modern times. And I'm looking at, the, at, at basically at the at the story itself and the broader implications. But uh, yeah, but I found it already when I, when I was a PhD student, the fascinating uh, tale of, about the Red Jews. And there is stories here, we'll get to my Domus or Mayor Schatz, listeners may be familiar and other things, but what's interesting about this, your book, and this episode in the series is that a lot of the other episodes, Elton Haddani, David Ruveni, Menashe Ben Antonio Di Montezinos, whatever, are more you know, stories that happened. Whereas this one is more of a literary construct or oral construct, some sort of construct that the, that as we'll talk about, the Aserah Sashvat and Tendlos tribes became, become associated with red Jews. That's what they're called. And we have other, all sorts of other interesting things. So that's kind of a unique thing about this topic worth pointing out. So why red? Why not green or yellow or something else? Actually, I also did find the green Jews in the end in a parody. But why red? Um, it's uh, when you look at the color red in medieval color symbolism. It's a color which has, like all medieval color symbolism, has ambivalent meaning. So red could be a positive color, could mean uh, love, for example. For Christian, it would mean uh, Christ's passion. But also red um, was mostly actually perceived as a negative color, as uh, as the color of sin, as the color of war, bloodshed, all this. And you mentioned before the Red Jews are a construct, um, an imagination, an imagined people. Um, and 
They come up sometime in the late 13th century in Germany among Jews and Christians, and both associated the red Jews with the color red, um, partly because of this uh, color symbolism, because they symbolized, as I said, bloodshed, for example. Um, so maybe we talk first about the Christian construct, why the Christians uh, called the Ten Lost Tribes red. For them, the Ten Lost Tribes were the army of the Antichrist, so it was something, a people which was inherently negative. They were feared, the Ten Lost Tribes or the Red Jews in Christian imagination, to come at the end of times, um, rush into Europe and kill the Christians. And there, there you can see or you can understand why in Christian imagination they were colored red, because they, they would shed Christian blood um, and they were feared. And also there's another, um, another important aspect to it. Um, they are also in Christian, in the Christian view, the red Jews are identified with Edom, which has the same root as Adom in Hebrew, red. And it comes from, um, from this verse in Genesis where it says, uh, two nations are in your womb. The elders has, shall serve the younger. And we know the elder is Esau, Edom, and the younger is uh, Jacob, Israel. So both Jews and Christians identified themselves as Israel, Jacob, and identified the other as sort of the religiously talking, speaking, the loser, Edom. So for Christians, it was clear the Jews are Edom. And this also translated into calling this fictive, fictional Jewish uh, people the Red Jews because they were feared and they were Jewish so they would be equated with Edom. Which is a fascinating thing because in Jewish you know, tradition the other way is that the Christians are, you know, Rome and then the Christians, everyone's depicted as Edom, not the Jews. This is kind of, like you said, everyone wants to be the winner, not the loser as depicted in the, uh, in the Bible and the Torah. So what you're saying also is is that this whole construct of red Jews and associating the lost tribe with the red Jews, does that come from the Christians? Is that originally a Christian thing that eventually gets reappropriated by the Jews later? That's a very good question. Um, we cannot definitely say in which language, whether in German or in Yiddish, the red Jews pop up first. Um, the oldest texts I have, are German texts about the Red Jews from the late 13th century. But from Jewish sources, it seems like around the same time, the term was also appropriated or adopted among Jews um, for the 10 tribes, Yiddish-speaking Jews. So I can say it was a shared term, shared imagination, sometimes from the 13th century, but I cannot say who adopted it from who. What I definitely can say that one group always... Um, was in dialogue with the other when using the term, because it could be that Jews used the term red in, 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 in relation to the ten tribes first, because um, it is said in the story of Eldad Hadani, and I know that there's also an episode on it in your series, um, it is said that the sons of Moses are clad in red, they're wearing red garments. And the sons of Moses are the 10 tribes. So it could be 
that the Christians were familiar with with El Dad and then took it took the color from there. But this we cannot say. So, whichever way it started, the Christians used it to view the lost tribes in a negative light, and the Jews ended up using it to view them in a positive light. And it's worth discussing. How do the Jews view it? Because, as you said, you already mentioned the negative connotation of red that gets associated in the Middle Ages, and that gets associated, therefore, you know, the Christian eyes with the lost tribes. But how do the Jews use red to view the lost tribes? Actually, they make a, those creators of the Yiddish story. They make an ingenious move because they they play on the term in the Bible admoni. Because in the Bible, you find the word admoni, radio, red, exactly three times. One time with regard to Edom, whose Esaph is described as red. And the other two times, it is um, it refers to David. So what the Yiddish story does is it reevaluates the value of the color red as positive by connecting it to David. Because we know, of course, David is the forerunner of the Messiah, and he's uh, the, the victorious king of Israel. So by connecting the red Jews to the hero David, they, in the Jewish imagination, they can be a positive figure of identification again. And I think it's worth pointing out about the Christians, just going back for a minute, that you have the, um, this is in your first book, I believe, and here also, where you have the stained glass, it's really cool to see, in the church in Frankfurt under Oder from, I think it's the 14th century, right? Or if it's not older. No, no, it's, you're right. It's from the mid to end 14th century. Um, yeah, it's like, I agree. It's uh, If you ever come to Frankfurt under Oder, it's, I think that's the most interesting thing to see because we have a church here, St. Mary's Church, and this church is unique for its stained glass windows. I think they are 13 meters high, so it's gigantic stained glass windows, beautiful work of art. And one depicts the creation, the other depicts the story of Jesus, and the other one depicts the story of the Antichrist. And in this, and then there are few windows depicting the red Jews, because as I mentioned briefly before, in Christian apocalyptic thought, the red Jews are the army of the Antichrist. Um, and then in the in the stained glass windows, we have depictions of them being um, waiting for the Antichrist and then being fetched by the Antichrist. So this is this is monumental and uh, it's uh, it's it's great to see because when you come to the church in when there's light shining through the windows, you can see the red Jews with their red faces and red um, and red garments from afar because it's constructed in the way that the light breaks through this window, that um, the red juice appear in a very bright red color. I'll try to find the link for that. There must be a link online and put it in the show's notes. The listeners can just click on that to see the picture. And then you could really get a, you know, like you're saying, a, a feel of what how it was really depicted in the Antichrist. And I think we don't have to explain that. We don't have to go more into the kind of Christian thought and how the red Jews were portrayed negatively in that. Um, but something... On the Jewish angle, and as you mentioned, it's the Yiddish literature, really. It's not the Hebrew literature coming out of Germany at this time. It's in the Yiddish literature in Germany. And so the Jews, as you said, they're associated with Admoni, with, with David, with David, and they're portrayed 
therefore positively the fact that they're called red Jews, not in a negative way. It's a very positive thing. Yeah, um, it is. Um, maybe one one word on mentioning you mentioned Hebrew and Yiddish and German. It's it's important to note that the legend or the term and the image of the red Jews we only have in the German speaking areas. So we have it in German, but we do not have it in Latin or any other European vernacular. And we have it in Yiddish, but we do not have it in Hebrew. So it's 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 really it's a it's a it's a folkloristic or vernacular term and image shared by Jews and Christians in the German speaking lands. Now, how do the Jews, or the you know, the Yiddish German literature, how do they view these red Jews? They call them red Jews. Are they viewed as kind of red? Are they like uh, barbaric warriors? They're coming to save them. They're strong. And you could also say, I don't know, I think we mentioned briefly, but how do the Christians view them? How does each side view them in their imaginary mind? Let's start again with the Christians. Because on the Christian, in the Christian culture, we do have pictures. You mentioned the pictorial depictions. So you mentioned the, the church windows in Frankfurt under order, but we also have, we have, um, paintings in manuscripts and we have, um, illustrations in, in manuscripts and also prints. And there you can see the red Jews. They are envisioned as having red hair, red faces and red garments to sort of visualize their aggression, um, their dangerousness. So in the in the Yiddish context, unfortunately for the early modern period and the evil period, we don't have any actual depictions of the red Jews. But from the textual sources I have, we can infer that Jews also imagine the red Jews as having red hair or red garments or red faces. So the imagination, how they looked, is very similar. Um, and you ask how the Jews envisioned the red Jews. It's, uh, they envisioned them, first of all, similar to the, to how their Christian counterparts would imagine them as uh, strong, mighty warriors, because they had to be strong. I mean, they are the 10 lost tribes. And as you probably discussed in the other episodes of the series, the 10 lost tribes are, um, a mighty tribe of warriors. So the Red Jews are first and foremost warriors. But um, but I don't want to rush to Master Akdamut. So in so all in all, the, the, the depiction is, is very similar. They look the same in both cultures and they are envisioned as mighty warriors. As and also in the beginning you said uh, the Red Jews are a literary construct. Yes, of course, but at the same time, in the pre-modern mind, they were understood as um, a political nation, as a nation which existed somewhere in the distant reaches of Asia, where nobody has been yet. Um, so also on world maps, Christian world maps, um, we have uh, we find the Red Jews, where they lived. So... Yeah, they, they were imagined as, 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 a, as a warrior nation, basically. Right, and that's... Um, 
you mentioned Maisak Thomas, which is something that we'll get to, of course, and that plays a very big part over here. But as you mentioned, they are like considered warriors. Now, what about before we get to Maisak Thomas? This is kind of the early uh, period here, like the Middle Ages. What about as we get to the Reformation? How do they, and we'll get later to how they're viewed in modernity, but just to the Reformation time before we'll jump back to Maisak Thomas, I just want to finish up on that. Like, are they still depicted the same way? Or does it start, does it change the red Jews? And again, this could be in either side, because here we're going to keep going to Christian, to the Jewish side, both sides. You clearly read my book. Yes, <laughs> there is a change. Um, what happens, it's, it's really interesting. Um, in the Christian world, after, in the German Christian world, um, after about 300 years, the red Jews um, lost grip. They, they, around 1600, they slowly disappeared from German literature, from German culture. And as I argue in my book, this happened in a complex uh, process of recoding. And one part of this process was, I mean, it happened in the Reformation time. So one part of the process was um, what I call a visual crisis during the Reformation period. Um, that in the Reformation, Luther, for example, and other reformers, they um, prioritized hearing, hearing God's word, instead of seeing. So one part of the argument um, I make in the book is that because of they basically fell out of favor. Um, it was it was a different literary taste or different um, taste of understanding. Um, slowly um, becoming um, slowly um, being being created in the in the in the world of the Reformation. Um, and another another part is which is more concrete and, and more palpable that the the Ottoman Turks who advanced towards Europe in the late Middle Ages, early modern period, they were identified with the ten lost tribes or with the red Jews. Um, and at some point, uh, the the red Jew, the the Turks in the Christian mind were more made more sense to them as an apocalyptic enemy than the red Jews. So the red Jews also on this in this sense they were not they were not so important anymore because um, all the the fears Christians would have of the end of times were not projected on the Red Jews anymore, but on the Turks. And the third, the third aspect or the third development which we um, see in the late Middle Ages uh, in the 16th century is that there was a shift towards ethnography, um, describing newly discovered peoples, um, where they lived, what were their their rituals. Um, their customs, and we also here find uh, the ten tribes of the Red Jews, and then they are at some point they are connected to the Red Sea, and it's other in other um, texts they are described as being black, so black Jews. So in short, what happened over the 16th century was that this term, which um, was an emblem before in Christians thought for this. Um, dangerous Jewish army of the Antichrist, um, this term became a bit arbitrary because 
those Jews could be black or they could be red, they could live at the beyond the Sambakyon or in, in the Red Sea. And so then this, I argue, this icon didn't work anymore. So that's why it was lost gradually in the Christian world. What role, if any, does the competing Christian legend, let's call it competing, of Prester John play into this? Or does it play any role in this at all throughout the centuries? Or, you know, there's also an episode in the series on Prester John. I, I don't know if Prester John, does it play into the Red Jews at all? Because that's also something in, you know, as you said, the Red Jews were always in the mind of the of the Jews and of the Christians it was a political thing. They re- it wasn't just a, you know, imaginary, it wasn't imaginary, but it was like a real kind of imagined thing. And Prester John, we find in the sources, is, a lo- is the same in a lot of ways. But was that also the case in Germany, in the German-speaking lands, or not really? No, it, it it does play um, into or it's connected, let's say, to the to the legend of the Red Jews because um, the Christians believed Prester John um, to be the ruler over the ten lost tribes. So there were the the, red, the the ten lost tribes were the vessels basically of Prester John and the Christian imagination and. What the Yiddish adoption or adaptation of the Red Jews does, reappropriation, um, they also, this Yiddish legend also rewrites sort of the interpretation of Prester John, because there are some versions um, of the Red Jews story in the 16th century which clearly have the Red Jews fight against Prester John in the Yiddish. And um, here, of course, they are victorious over Prester John. So here it's also, it's an answer to the Christian interpretation, basically saying, hey, no, not Prester John, he's not invincible. It's the Red Jews who can be victorious over Prester John. So yes, it does play into, into this legend too. One more question before we get to Maisak Damas, kind of varying that, the very important part here. But um, where are the Red Jews... Um, Located in these legends, in these writings, where do they depict the Red Jews, or do they depict them in a variety of places? Uh, yes, I, I mean, I, I mentioned a few of them. In, in general, like the Ten Tribes, they are depicted or imagined to live beyond the river Sambation, um, the river which is impassable for Jews uh, on the sh- on the on the Shabbat. It's, it's it's only quiet then, but then of course Jews cannot get over it, and during the other weeks, the other days of the weeks. Its its waves are so high and it carries stones, so nobody can go cross over it. So, since the Red Jews are the Ten Tribes, they live beyond the Sambation. But also, in some sources, they are um, identified as living beyond the mountains of darkness, beyond uh, the gates of uh, Alexander, who enclosed, uh, according to the Alexander legend, the barbarian nations. Sometimes in this since the late 15th century, they're also um, depicted or imagined as living on an island in the Red Sea. We find this in both Yiddish sources and in Christian sources. Um, and as I said, they are often on world maps, they are imagined or they're depicted as living in, in Asia, North northeastern Asia. So now we can get to the Maisak Dhamma story. And it's important for what we mentioned earlier, that they're warriors and uh, magicians. I don't think we mentioned that. But Maisak Dhamma story is something that is familiar to listeners, probably to an extent. Um, something Akdamas has read on Shavuos, and this is kind of 
historical legend story that's associated with it. So, you know, first, if you want to relay the story, and then we can get into, you know, the Red Jews part in that, in that, uh, in that story. So Maisak Domus is one of the most popular stories about the Red Jews. Um, basically, first of all, it's 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 the story about the creation of the Piyut Akdamut Milin, um, which um, was written by Rabbi Meir Schatz uh, of the city of Worms. And in Maisak Akdamut is, is, is not the, the 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 contemporary title of the of the of the story, actually, it's a, it's a title given by scholars to it, and the leg, the legend about um, Piyut, the Piyut Akdamut Milin is, uh, is is in Yiddish, and it's basically about um, a Christian hater of the Jews. In some versions, he's uh, he's he's described as called Black Monk, and uh, this hater of the Jews kills many thousands of Jews by by magic, by black magic, by just looking at them. And the the Jews first, to save themselves, go to the emperor. And um, I mean, this, 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 the story is in some versions clearly set in, uh, in the German, in Germany. So they go to the emperor to protect them. The emperor cannot protect them. Then they go and fast and repent and, to ask God for help. Also, it doesn't work. And then the magician, the black magician says, okay, I will do the Jews no more harm if within one year they can find somebody, a Jewish magician, who can compete with me in a magical contest. And if he can defeat me, I will not harm them anymore. I will not kill any more Jews. But if I win, I will kill them all. Um, so the red, the, the, the Jews know about their brothers beyond the Sambatian, the Red Jews, who are, according to this legend, famed as magicians. So they ask um, Rebbe Meir Schatz of Worms to function as, an, as a messenger and travel beyond the Sambatian to ask the Red Jews for help. He goes beyond the Sambatian, there he meets the Red Jews, and the Red Jews sent one of them to come with Mayor Schatz back to, to Germany, to Worms, and to compete with a black magician. And of course, this red Jew is victorious over the magician, and thereby he saves all the Jews in Europe from the black magician. And here we come to the Piyut. Um, Rabbi Mayor Schatz, actually, who was not able to return together with the Red Jews to Worms because um, he could not uh, get over the Sambation. Again, as I said before, it's only it's only quiet during the Shabbat. And before he could cross, because it was Pikur Nefesh, but afterwards he was not allowed to cross again. So he stayed beyond the Sambation. But he wrote, according to legend, the Piyut Akdamut Melin and give it to the Red Jew to bring it back to his hometown in Worms. And... Uh, in praise of the of the events, he asked that his uh, his community in Worms would from now on read or recite this period every uh, year on Shavuot. So that's how the Red Jews come into the story of the uh, Akdamut Milin. 
Yeah, and you know, some of the story um, listeners are probably familiar with. I know, knew growing up as a kid, you know, you hear they couldn't remember shots went over, he couldn't come back, and then he never comes back. And the story is actually it talks about um, what the wife comes to the red Jew and he says, "What happened to my husband?" And you know, they have to support her and you know all that stuff. Um, and then the red Jew marries the daughter of Mayor Schatz and Worms, and I think beyond the Sabbatian, the Mayor Schatz marries the daughter of uh, the Red Jew, so they are at the same time uh, father-in-law and brother-in-law. So it's uh, it's very interesting. Yeah, they they become related, which is interesting. Another thing is, um, first of all, I already mentioned in your book you include an early uh, manuscript version of Maisek Damas. You translate, you do a complete translation into English as an appendix, and there's a lot of Maisek Damas discussion in the book. But something very interesting, and I don't remember if you mentioned this on the podcast or before we started talking about, we mentioned they're called the Red Jews, the Yudin, but they're also called like the Little Red Jews, um, not only Red Jews. And the Jew in the story, Mahasak Damas, he's considered called the Little Red Jew. That's what he's called. Why is he called the Little Red Jew? Actually, that's, that's the key to the entire Yiddish uh, story, because in early modern Yiddish, the Red Jews are always called Red Jews, not Little Red Jews. Only this one Red Jew in the story who becomes, in the end, the savior, he is called Little. And in Masa Abdamut, he is uh, he's limping. He's an old, fragile man. Um, and so when he comes to Worms or to, to, to this magical contest, both Jews and Christians, they wonder how, like, how should this uh, little limping old man save us? How could how, sh- how can he be victorious over the black uh, strong mighty um, magician? And this is exactly where the Yiddish story links being read to David, because the Yiddish story about the Red Jews is um, is a retelling also of the motif of David. Or David um, fighting Goliath. So it's 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 another it's another story about how the little ones or the weak can be victorious over the mighty. So this is this is why the the, the literate Jew is little and weak, and in the end, he's the one who still kills the monk. Now, as an aside, Remeir shots really existed. You should have another podcast series on B team. He did, yes, he did exist, and um, he, he was one of the of the of the famous uh, Paitanim in Germany, and he's most famous for this uh, for this for the Piyut Akdamut Milin, where in the Piyut you also find the acrostic of his name. Yeah, just to clarify for the listeners, it's <clears throat> he exists. The story is kind of the the legend. You know, it's a story. It's a legend, and it comes up all over. When is the earliest that we see the story in manuscript? You know, we see we see the you know the origins of this story. The origins of this story are much earlier than the the first written sources we have. the The oldest source, and this is also the the, the manuscript that it's uh, I included in a translation in the appendix to my book, is from the late sixteenth uh, century, around fifteen eighty. That's also the oldest text I have about in Yiddish about the Red Jews. Um, 
but clearly it like with most Yiddish legend of this kind of material, these texts were before for decades or centuries even transmitted orally. It was a story that was told and retold, and then at some point was written down, perhaps or probably probably even in Hebrew, um, and then later retranslated into Yiddish. So we can assume, but unfortunately I didn't find those uh, older Hebrew versions, but I have sources saying that uh, Masak Damut was included in old medieval Machzorim in, in Hebrew. So if anybody knows about, knows any medieval Machzor where you can find a Masak Damut, I would be very happy to hear about it. So you can understand the popularity of Masak Damus uh, to the Jews of Germany, the Holy Roman Empire, the kind of downtrodden Jews there, and why this would be something so popular. How do the Christians engage with this uh Thomas? Do we see it make its way at all into the German literature? I think no. If I remember correctly what I wrote in my book, no. Um, we don't have, uh, let's say, German translations of Maasaktamut. So, no. So this is really, this is, this is the Yiddish, uh, the Yiddish adaptation of the Yiddish reaction towards uh, towards the Yiddish story, and also in the time that Masa Agdamut and all the Yiddish stories really pick up, and and um, the red juice motif pops up in different genres in Yiddish literature, and it, as I said before, it was already declining in uh, in German culture. Now, there's another parallel. Not another. A parallel that you draw is between Maisak Damos and Todos Yeshu. Another kind of, not a, again, not another. It's a work that's around uh, in manuscript, kind of never printed at the time. Right. And it was, we can say it was another most popular story uh, in Yiddish, Toldot Yeshu. Uh, Toldot Yeshu, for those who do not know, is a basically Jewish polemical counter story of the life of Jesus um, and Jesus Yeshu in this in Toldot, uh, Toldot Yeshu is uh, is depicted as as the son of an of an of a unclean woman as, as a magician as a, as as an illegitimate legitimate child as um, as an impostor so he's depicted very negatively and Actually, he Yeshu shares in the in the, in the Jewish uh, story shares many features with the Antichrist taken from uh, Christian literature. And this and told that Yeshu was a very popular story um, among Jews, not only in Germany, um, also beyond uh, the European di- diaspora, in both Yiddish and in, in Hebrew. And in told that Yeshu, we also have a magical contest. Very similar to the magical contest we have in uh, Masa Agdamut. Even the objects involved are similar. We have trees flying around. We have, uh, we have millstones. And what is, I would say, is the, the most remarkable parallel is that in uh, Masa Agdamut, the black monk is identified with the Antichrist and also in 
In Toldot Yeshu, as I said before, Yeshu is identified with the Antichrist. So in Toldot Yeshu, who who's the one who defeats uh, Ye- who defeats Yeshu or the Antichrist? He is uh, Judas Iscariot, and uh, Judas, in Christian imagination, interestingly, is the notori- notorious red-headed Jew. So there you have this parallel. So um, in both stories, a redhead, the little red Jew, or in uh, Todot Yeshu, uh, Judas um, defeats the Antichrist, Yeshu or the monk. So there's there's the parallel. And um, we can clearly see that motifs from Todot Yeshu figure in, in Maase Akdamut. Maase Akdam is also... Some of the versions depicts the red Jew, the little red Jew, as a great magician. And he kills a lot of the non-Jews via magic. He touches their forehead. They die. So that's not something that's in, I don't think it's in all of them, all of the editions, but that's in some of them. And that has to do with what we said earlier, that the red Jews are depicted or assumed to be great warriors and sometimes magicians as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah we, have, we have this in, in other Yiddish uh, stories too, that... Um, in, we have one Yiddish story, for example, which um, reports or like describes how even the children of the of the Red Jews can one can slaughter one thousand, and which is of course a motif from the Bible. Um, so we have we have we have various depictions um, how they are feared, for example, by their Christian neighbors. I mentioned uh, Prester John before. So yes, they we have uh, this is a motif which uh, is widespread in Yiddish in Yiddish literature, like in in Hebrew literature also. It's uh, an, it's analogous to the to descriptions of the ten tribes in, in Hebrew and other Jewish languages. Um, yeah, I think you mentioned the sto- uh, something in the book called the the Vidu Vilt or Vidu another another story, and there's other stories as well that have parallels. Um, to this. So Maisak Thomas, as you mentioned, in Yiddish, it's in Hebrew. Does it enter Ladino or Judeo-Arabic or other Jewish cultures, other Jewish languages as well? Yes, it does in, in, in a variant, I would say, because what is very interesting, and I mentioned that before, the Red Jews, they populate the Yiddish imagination. Um, there are a few translations or adaptations in Hebrew. Um, I have several manuscripts of the story in Hebrew, but what we can see, it was not popular in Hebrew. It was never printed in Hebrew. So I argue in the book that this the visual code of the Red Jews didn't work in, in Hebrew, because in Hebrew you had the term Ten lost tribes. You you didn't use. You didn't need a new term like red Jews. And also, much of this of the of the interpretation of the red Jews, as and we spoke about it before, was tied to to the to the German Yiddish um, understanding of the color red and how this how this legend developed. So there are Hebrew versions from the 17th and 18th century, but never very popular. And you ask about. Um, Judeo-Arabic and Ladino, yes. I found in the Israel Folktale Archives in Haifa um, versions of the of the legend um, from Greece and Yemen. 
they were recorded by immigrants from these countries to the land of Israel or to the state of Israel. Um, and they were collected in the Israel Folktale Archives at the University of Haifa. They were written down in Hebrew, but we can assume that those the 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 uh, the informants they would have told them in their community of origin they would have told them in Ladino or in, uh, in Judeo Arabic. And what we see here is it's they are they those those versions are clearly variants of Maasekta Mut and other Red Jews stories. But what is interesting, they never use the term Red Jews. They don't translate it into Yehudim, Admonim, or Adumim in Hebrew. They use Ten Lost Tribes or Jews Beyond the Sambatian or Sons of Moses, something like this. But what we can see, and why I say it's variants of the of the story, is that also here we have a savior, an individual savior, a little savior from beyond the Sambatian who rescues a Jewish community in danger. And this is a motif which before um, the emergence of the Yiddish story about the Red Jews, we do not have in Hebrew literature. It's always the Ten Lost Tribes en masse, or as a group, but it's never one savior who is also limited in, in, in some ways who becomes a savior. So this is unique and it, it's, it's, it comes from the Yiddish legend. Now, regarding the Red Jews as a whole, what role does Messianism play in this? Because, and, and you know, people that are oppressed, we're talking about Jews in Germany, in the Holy Roman Empire. There's countless expulsions from various cities. There's pogroms, there's killing. I mean, this is a downtrodden people, to say the least. And what, what and I have another, there's another episode in this series with, Mati ben Melech discussing kind of messianism in the 14th, 15th century and that's there and that's there. But specifically as it relates to the Red Jews and just in general, which is the lost tribes for German Jews in, in this time, what role does that play? It's a good question. Um, of course, it, it's the story about the Red Jews on one level is a messianic story because uh, similar to the Christian to Christian imagination of the apocalypse. Jews imagined the Ten Lost Tribes or the Red Jews to come and save them, to sort of pave the way for the Messiah. So the Red Jews are an apocalyptical people, but at the same time, um, the, the Yiddish stories that we were discussing, which were so widespread, they also suggest, and I mentioned that before, that Jews, like their Christian counterparts, believe this these red Jews exist and not only come to their help at the end of times when the Messiah comes, but even before it was sort of a last resort. If other if 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 um other things don't help, like appealing to the authorities, praying, there was there was maybe the option of uh, enlisting help from the Red Jews. So it was, on the one hand, a comforting story, but it also was an empowering story. To And, and I argue this in my book also, that it also told the Yiddish readers uh, to stand up against oppression, and even before the Messiah comes. Not only wait till the Messiah will... will um, 
will redeem the Jews, but even before, sort of be like a red Jew and uh, stand up to their oppressors. Oppressors. So we spoke about how the red Jew legend, how it changes into the Reformation period. What happens after that into modernity? Because what's interesting is, you know, I talked to people about the series here and there, and I mentioned different episodes. I said red Jews, and I think everyone is like, what is red Jews? Red Jews, like, my Thomas, the story, I think, is very well known still today, um, at least among Jews. But red Jews, that legend is kind of, I think, Gone. I don't think people really know it at all. And this is something that you do trace in the book is what happens to this legend throughout modernity. So we kind of discussed till the Reformation, the 16th century. I mean, what happens after that and kind of just briefly, quickly until modernity, until today? Uh, um, in the 16th and 17th century, we have, uh, we have uh, many manuscripts and prints of the, of Marcel de Mutter, the Russian story. So it was, it was super widespread spread among uh, Yiddish-speaking Jews in early modernity. And first it was, and then at some point it sort of moved into Eastern Yiddish. So you can say in 1805, uh, I mark it as a, as a metaphorical turning point, so to say, um, because then the last version of Marcel Demut in Amsterdam was printed in the same year. It was, the printings were taken over in Vilna and Warsaw. So it was, and during the 19th and 20th centuries, still the Red Jew story was printed in Yiddish and also in Hebrew for the for Yiddish-speaking Jews in, in Eastern Europe. So it was very much alive um, till the Shoah. And and even and even now you can find printings, as you said, it, it, it's the Maaseh Demut is very is very widespread. So you do find printings about Maaseh Demut in the uh, in uh, in bookstores in Brooklyn and also in Mea Sharim. And but those books, even if they are printed in Yiddish, they don't include the term red Jews, they include the term ten lost tribes. But you can see that the story survives, but without the term. So um so th- this is this is for the red Jews, for 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 Master Mode for the stories for the red Jews. And but what happened is and this is something I discovered, and it was uh, it was not so it was not so so widely known is that there were of course stories about the Red Jews by the founders of modern Yiddish fiction, Mendel, Sholem Aleichem, Yutle Peretz. They all write short stories about the Red Jews, and here they clearly draw on the roots of the story in Old Yiddish, so they know it. Like Mendel read. Mass after mood. It's, there's no, there's no doubt about it. And, but they also change how they understand the red Jews because for them, they are not mighty warriors. For them, they are like, they're wandering Jews who are fragile and who needs to be rescued themselves. And then in modernity, in modern, in modern Hebrew literature, actually, and also Yiddish literature, there's also another strand, like um, writers like Uri Zvi Greenberg and Naftali herz the author of the Hatikva, they also draw on the motif of the Red Jews in their poems. And for them, the Red Jews are Zionist pioneers. They are muscular Jews. So what happens in short, when the Red Jews move into modernity in the, ni- in the 20th century, 
early 20th, late 19th century, they are picked up by in modern Yiddish literature as weak, wandering Jews. And at the same time, they reappear in Zionist uh, literature as uh, muscular Jews. Yeah, and you include in the book, which is nice, there's a fair amount of color pictures or photographs, and you have a couple of uh, paintings of Chagall, Marc Chagall, which are depicting red Jews. There's actually one of a green Jew, as you mentioned this earlier. And then there's some other um, artists as well that you have. And you even have, the last thing is you have a Shrine to the Red Jews from 2012. There's like bottles of red milk and red. So interest, isn't it, that's an interesting one. What's the story of that one? I, again, listeners have to see it. It's in the book, but it's kind of a, it's like a shrine. It's interesting. It's Not super interesting. Yeah, I came across it. It's actually it's it's by the by the Brooklyn-based artist Michael Levine. He built in 2012. He built a shrine to the Red Jews in the refrigerator. And what is and this this piece of art I think is remarkable in two ways because it summarizes so much of the of the story of the Red Jews. First of all, he it lives in Brooklyn amongst. Uh, in a Hasidic neighborhood where people speak Yiddish, but he does not encounter the Red Jew story through speaking with his Hasidic neighbors. Because as we said before, like this, the Red Jews, the story is not now known anymore, not even among Yiddish speakers. Um, but the, the artist discovered it through reading a scholarly book, the book that I mentioned before by Andrew Gao on the Christian Red Jews. And so, so it underlines that the Red Jews in Jewish imagination are lost today. And the other aspect why I think it's remarkable and it fits the Red Jews so well is that uh, Michael Levine is a visual artist. And a lot of the power of the Red Jew story in Old Yiddish draws on its visual code. Because the Red Jews were imagined. They were not only known to be Red Jews, but they were imagined, as I said before, with the red hair, red clothes. And pre-modern culture, both Jewish and Christians, Christian culture, um, was very tentative to the power of sight. And the power of sight was used in for didactic purposes, for pedagogical purposes. Um, and... And also we know today from modern scientific uh, studies that looking at something colorful um, activates the same regions in your brain as imagining some, some color. So, so medieval and early modern authors, they already know about, knew about this power of sight, of color, and it was, uh, it was employed in, in much of medieval and early modern literature. Color symbolism, for example. So, yeah, and then, and that's why I, I conclude the book with the, this, uh, the red juice in the, in the, in the Brooklyn fridge, because I think here the story comes full circle. So, the series is called The Ten Lost Tribes in Jewish Consciousness. And I think as like a final question here, the red Jews, as we said, today it's kind of a lost, kind of a, legend, a story, but in Jewish consciousness, 
How important is the Red Jews? And therefore, for listeners to get to know a little bit about it, to read your book, perhaps to learn about the Red Jews, I mean, this is a really important, would you say this, it is a really important part of the story of the Ten Lost Tribes staying in Jewish consciousness and also maybe coming there to some of the Jews in some of these lands, you know, keeping them in their mind, the Lost Tribes. Yeah, definitely. And also, I think the Red Jews is a great example of uh, of um stories in in the diaspora that circulated which were which which were invigorating which were empowering um and and it's it's a great way to engage with major um, discourses in, in in Jewish history through a folk tale, basically through 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 a story whose who the people who retold it, listened to it, were ordinary people. So I think this is what makes the the Red Jew story so important. It's not it's not a story that was told by rabbis how to perceive. Um, uh, living in uh, in Europe during the early modern period or in, in the Middle Ages, but it was a story that was read and retold by by ordinary people, by by men who didn't know Hebrew but only read Yiddish, by women, by children. So this is why we, we have a, we have an additional perspective, an additional lens on Jewish life in the pre modern world. Correct, and it's a really interesting story and very interesting to know about, especially something that associated with the Lost Tribes that's not really well known today. Um, and there's a lot, there's other aspects I'm sure we didn't get to that you delve into in your book. Um, also, one final note is that the cover art is really cool on the book. It comes with Red Jews in League with the Amazons, and it comes from a German illuminated manuscript, which is really interesting. So, you, you know, there's, there'll be a link in the show's notes where you can purchase the book, but click on the link and check out the picture of the cover just to see you, that, you know, like you were saying, you kind of see that art, you see that visualization of the Red Jews. And I'll put a link, I said, try to find, I'm sure I can find online somewhere to the stained uh, glass in the church in Frank Fernando Order, but the cover of the book also, you really see that depiction. It really comes across well of what, how they envision the Red Jews. Um, so it's worth looking at, worth seeing. I, I always wanted to find a, a visual artist who would agree to to draw a comic book about the Red Jews because I think it's Masak Damut and also the visualization of the Red Jews. It would be it would be a wonderful project, but uh, so far I haven't found anybody. But uh, I hope at some point I will do it. Yeah, and in the book also, you know, we we discussed the Masak Damut story. Listeners are familiar, but you have a full translation of it in an appendix, and you do analyze it almost like line by line. There's a lot of analyzation of it and the specifics and all. Like you said, turning it into a comic book, kind of like the the different variations of the story and the magician is going, is coming. It's very interesting to read it. It's like it. a film script. It's like a film script, the Masak Damut. So it, it would be very easy for somebody to adapt it into a movie, even Masak Damut, or into a comic book. It's, uh, it's really uh, very interesting. And so, uh, you know, I put a link to the show, to in the show's notes to the book, and hopefully listeners enjoyed it and they learned a little bit about the Red Jews and their part in the, the story of the Ten Lost Tribes. And again, in Jewish consciousness, not the story of the Azar Shvatim, more so that's why 
the name of the series is in uh, Jewish consciousness. And so thank you, Professor Voss, for joining me once again. And for the listeners, just a note here at the end again, there's another episode of Professor Voss's book on Disputed Messiahs. Um, I don't, that was recorded first, but I don't know which one will end up being released first. So if that one was released first, go, you know, check it out. If it wasn't, stay tuned. Thank you, Professor Voss, for joining me once again. Thank you for having me.